I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Please be advised that Gen X This Is Why contains adult language. I hate you so hard right now. We just talked for 20 minutes and Jenny never hit record. Okay. Well, it wasn't that good anyway. <laughs> it was some of my best work. Welcome to Gen X This Is Why Time Capsule, where we re-examine the sometimes bizarre and often scarring events from our shared childhood. My name is Amy and I'm a proud Gen Xer born in 1977. And I'm her sister Jenny, born in 1974. Today we're going to continue our talk about Challenger, The Final Flight, Netflix's four-part docuseries recalling the events of the Challenger shuttle explosion in 1986. All right. So guys, make sure you check out part one of Time Capsule, where we covered episodes one and two of this miniseries. So Jenny, let's start with the open of episode three. And the names of the episodes are episode three is called A Major Malfunction and episode four is called Nothing Ends Here. Okay. So the episode opens with the astronauts and their families at a secluded beach house. Okay, so it's the day before the launch. It's January 25th, uh, 1986. They come from Houston because they're all living in Houston, like out near Kennedy Space Center. They fly to Florida. Dick flies on his plane. Of course he does. <laughs> so does Mike Smith. And so does Mike. Yeah, mm-hmm. So they fly their own jets over and the, mm-hmm. the rest of the civilians and non-pilots come over um, on an asphalt plane. And they there's a tradition where they all stay, all the astronauts the night before the launch stay at this, I don't know if it's the night before. Yeah, it would have been the night before launch. Mm-hmm. Stay at this beach house and like have their families there and just it's kind of like a I want to talk about the beach house okay the beach house as our girl June describes has like red leather furniture and it's like swanky can you imagine like what goes down in that beach house like astronauts were they were like mythical in society like they were kind of a big deal think about those Apollo astronauts Right. So even later in the episode, they interview like the day of the disaster. They just quick. They had every former astronaut they could think of on CNN to tell what they thought. Went, went well, wrong. there's and a reason. Were, there's a reason that happened. And they but, were yeah. way off. 
But they had one dude on. His name was Deke Slayton. And I'm thinking he had like his shirt kind of unbuttoned. And he's like, I think it was the engine. But I'm thinking this dude was probably drowning in women. Like he probably cleaned up Deke Slayton. So I I can imagine like what went down at that beach house. I want to know where that is. They walked on the moon. Like they're a pretty big deal. They're a pretty big deal. Yeah. It's their families are there. Cause- okay. So, so right. So this is a little different because like their families are there and everything, but who's using that beach house all the other time? Right. All the rest of the time. Yeah. It's probably something different. Yep. But it was a very, I felt like it was a very somber note in the episode. Well, I felt like it was because we know what happened. So it felt sad to me. Like it can't not feel sad to you. I mean, I don't think it was somber to them. Like it's right. Right. It right. Seems like, you know, everyone's meeting everybody's families. Like, um, I think June described it as a like a family reunion kind of atmosphere. Yeah, and June said that she was ta- we we just listen to June. <laughs> I, think I love June her. Says. I love her. Um, June said that they were taking she was taking pictures of all the couples, and somebody took a picture of uh, her and Dick, and he always used to have his arm around her, but in this picture she has his arm around him. And I'm thinking it's interesting what people remember mm-hmm. about things. Right? I don't know. I yeah. just thought that was a... Yeah, because this was 30 years ago. Yeah, it was an interesting detail. 30, and she she was married to him. Ago. She was married to him for 26 years. Yeah. Well, they got married, she said in the earlier episode. She was still 16 and he was 19. Wow. Like, so they were kids. Like, they grew up together, What's basically. I don't know. Mm, Dick and June. Woof. That would have been in, like, the 50s. Who knows? Mm. Yeah, and we don't know where it was. Okay. So the shuttle is supposed to go up the next day. So let's talk about that launch and what happened. So the original launch was Sunday, January 26, 1986, which happened to be Super Bowl Sunday. Hmm. Do we want to see who was in the Super Bowl? Because you feel that you, I feel like you think this is relevant. Pause. It was the Bears, which I remember because that's, that's the refrigerator. refrigerator. Yeah. And the Patriots. Okay. Oh, New England, right? The New England that Patriots a- screw everything up, I feel. Oh, my God. I knew they were involved. <laughs> I knew it. That's whose fault I, this guys, is. I'm just kidding. I could care less. I'm just – we could care less about football, correct, Jenny? Correct. Correct. So it's So it's Super Bowl Sunday. They're supposed to launch. A weatherman predicts – on Saturday, that there's rain in the forecast. We don't know how strong this prediction was. <laughs> there's rain and thunderstorms in the forecast for the entire launch window. That's the that is the weather prediction. I feel that it was intimated that it was going to be a hard rain. It was a hard yes on this from the douchebag weatherman. But it's still predicting the weather and what i think it was dick scoby said was they typically don't call scrub the launch for weather until the day of until they're like you know a couple hours before launch and it's starting to rain and starting to thunder like they don't they don't call it to the last minute for weather and he was very very surprised that they called this so early am i the only one who would hang out with the scobies i i love june scoby like i imagine she and dick were probably pretty fond yeah mm-hmm like, I would have had some Manhattans with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. In their red leather couch. Or like an old-fashioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
so the launch is scrubbed, scrubbed. and everybody's shocked. That's it. And everybody's shocked and surprised and like, what the hell? And then the next day comes Sunday and the weather was fine until an hour. To be fair, it was fine until an hour after the launch window. So like it still rained and thundered, but it was just slightly later than predicted. Yeah. The weather comes through, but it's an hour late. So they could have launched. It was perfect conditions. Right. But the weatherman was right. There was a storm. It just moved in later. Mm-hmm. It's weather. Like it's gonna vary up and the audience can't minute. see I rolled my eyes, so they don't know why you're doubling down on this. But Jenny loves Jenny loves all weather, man. It either rains or it doesn't. No one mm-hmm. knows what the fuck's gonna happen. Like you can't predict what like when you're flying an airplane, you could say there's a storm right there, like we can't fly. But they don't, you know, like yeah, whatever. They don't okay. know. Sure. So they decide to do it the next day. So the next day, second attempt. So second Monday. attempt. Is Monday, January 27th, 1986. It's a go. Let's load the crew. So they load the crew. They put the crew in the fucking shuttle. They're in the shuttle, all suited up, ready to go, all excited. There's an issue with a hatch. So there's, when they put the crew in the, in, in the shuttle, they remove the handle from the door. Why they couldn't design something better than this? Unsure. But they have to take a screwdriver and unhook this handle and take it off. Seems okay. I'm just gonna say to me. right there, I'm done. Yeah, right there, I'm out. So they're they locking me in this thing, and I have no way to get out. Nope. So they remove they have to remove the handle. So they go to remove the handle with like whatever they have up there that they usually do. This is totally standard practice. This is always what they do, which seems crazy that you have to remove things. But I don't anyway. think that's what it was. No, I think this is the what it handle was. got stuck. No way. And then they decided to remove it. No. So they always, this is standard, usual okay. practice. They remove this handle. They have a tool to do it. One of the screws oh, was that they had on screw was stripped. stripped yeah, yeah, so yeah. They couldn't get it off. So they call a repair team. And did you see the the interview with the reporter dude was going nuts about the Bill repair? Bill Harwood. He's like, you see these guys come out in the van and they're going the speed limit. And we have to launch. And it's like, come on, dude. Oh, that was great. So they, so this repair team comes up and they have all battery operated equipment because you can't have anything electrical on the pad once the fuel is loaded. So they have all this battery operated shit. None of the batteries are charged. None of the batteries are charged. I'm out. Who are these like douchebags? Like, are you kidding me? Jenny, you're, you're Krista McAuliffe. Okay. At this point. Oh, I'm done. I'm out. You're out, right? Yeah, you're I'm like, like what who the are hell? these? Like, you're Judy Resnick. Like, nope, I'm out of here. Are these the guys fixing this thing? Like taking care of it? Like, are you kidding me? Did yeah. this did this group of three stooges build this thing? I'm out. Somebody actually called them the three stooges. There you it was go. Alan McDonald. There you go. So, so they decide to take a hacksaw and cut the handle off. It's an okay. aluminum handle, so you can get through it, but it's going to take a while. Yeah. So they get a hacksaw. Instead of just getting another battery, they get a hacksaw, and they start hacking this thing off, which takes some time. So meanwhile, mm-hmm. the weather is moving The winds in. are kicking The up. window is closing. So the weather comes in. So this takes too long. The weather moves in. They have to scrub the launch. I would be enraged coming out of that rocket. I know. Me too. Oh my! I God. mean, I'm enraged if I'm sitting behind somebody, you know, on Route Six, and I can't get to the Sheets gas station. <laughs> Let alone, I can't. You know, I went through all this trouble, 
First of all, how are you sleeping the night before you get in that shower? No, no one is. No. Who, who is sleeping? No. Yeah. There's mm-hmm. no way I would be sleeping. This is like Jenny has said. She would just do coke, not take a long bath. <laughs> <laughs> no, this might be a good time for a long bath. <laughs> listen so, to our listen to our Blockbusters episode of Nightmare on Elm Street where Jenny admits she would choose coke over a long bath. <laughs> if I had to not fall asleep because a maniac's trying to kill me in my dream, that would be my choice. Mm, I sent that to dad. We'll see what he says. Great. Okay. So then the final day. So big problem though. They take them all out of the shuttle. Huge problem. There's going to be freezing temperatures in Florida on Monday night. Eight degrees. Eight degrees. Eight degrees. Yeah. Well, they predict the weatherman predicts that heck of a weatherman could go get down to eight degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, probably was forty-seven. It's definitely going to be below freezing. So they're expecting because it was a big deal because all the orange crops were like. Oh my God. And all the news people were like, go cover the orange crops. They sent John Zarella from CNN who, how, here's what a news junkie I am. The minute I saw him, I'm like, that's John Zarella. Oh my God. Okay. So they sent CNN redirects John Zarella away from the shuttle, the shuttle to go cover the orange crops. Well, because they're like, they're no, there's no way they're going to launch the shuttle. It's freezing tonight. So then this is when. The teleconference happens. So what happens is dun, dun, dun. NASA goes back and they say, all right, we got to get everybody on the phone because we have to talk. We have to see what the risk is with this weather issue. Okay. So even the crew thought it was going to get scrubbed. Mm-hmm. Like they just, they, they're like, there's, oh, it's too cold. Well, like Dick, our man, Dick Scobie. Telling June. Dick was telling June. <laughs> oh, dude, it's not going to launch. It's too cold. No yeah. way. No way. Yeah. We're not going to launch tomorrow. So NASA calls. Joe Kilminster, who is the VP of the S, who is the VP of the left SRB program. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. There's the right. There's so Chris. much bloat at the top of this company, guys. Oh my god! I think he's the vice president of the left Solid Rocket. <laughs> so he's he's so vice he's, president of the O Rings. So he's at Morton T. I'm just gonna call it Morton T because I cannot say Thiokol. I keep m- m- messing it up. So okay. So NASA calls Joe and he's like, hey, we got a weather situation down here in Florida because these guys are in Utah. MT is in Utah. So they're like, we have a weather situation. It's 22 degrees right now, already below freezing. It's going to get colder. What are the risks, guys? Should we worry about anything? So you already know that like NASA's tipping their hand a little bit. Like they already know there's something to worry about or else they wouldn't be making this call. Right. Well, is it um, our buddy Alan McDonald who says this is basically a cover your ass operation? Well, he says that later. Yeah, because well, Alan McDonald works for Morton T, mm-hmm. but he's actually in Florida with the NASA people. Yes. So, okay, we have a weather situation. So Joe calls Bob Lund, who is the VP of engineering, and says, "Get your guys together. Get the engineers together." Now, this Give is us- the engineers, the people engineers. who know their shit about this. These are the experts, subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. They they built in they, they built, built, built this shit. Mm-hmm. So get them together, do an assessment, let us know if there's anything we might be concerned about with the solid rocket boosters. And we're gonna have a, a teleconference with NASA later. Great. So they all get together, they drop a bunch of shit, they put together this whole thing. Brian Russell said when Bob got that call, I exclaimed, he said, The O rings. Brian Russell is adorable. He is like, everybody wants to hang out with him. He is, 
He gets emotional. He's like so passionate. Like I just love him. He's great. So Brian Russell is what they call a systems reliability engineer. So we have these in technology. We talked world. about this in our last episode. You listen to them. You friggin' listen to these guys. Cause like if shit's going to go wrong, they're the first ones that know it. So they're, it's either in technology, we call it site reliability engineers or system reliability. These guys know their shit. They know if something's going to go wrong. So, okay. So Brian's like, oh shit, the O-rings. Ding, 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 ding. Problem. No question there's going to be a problem. If it's that cold, forget it. We're not going to launch. So they all think it's going to get, the launch is done. Like they're all like, right. launch is done. So they're in the conference room up in Utah at Morton T later. It's Bob Ebling, Joe, Kilminster, Brian, Bob Lund, and then Alan McDonald is down in Florida with the NASA people. So at NASA, they're in a trailer at Cape Canaveral. They have uh, Larry... Malloy, Larry Malloy, Al McDonald, a couple other people. The engineers hand wrote a presentation. It was called temperature concern on SRM joints. The O-rings will be launching colder than we've ever launched before. So this is the coldest temperature they've ever launched at. So AIM, would there be data as to what would happen launching at this temperature? There would be no data. We would not be able to prove it. Because right. you've never launched at that right. point. So they have yeah. no data of what happens at 22 degrees or 10 degrees. They have no data. They, I think they had it as low. From looking at that paper, it looks like it's as low as like 38, 35, something like that. It's not It's not even below freezing, I don't think. Right. So, But they see deterioration at 40 degrees at 30. Like, so, mm-hmm. concern. This is the first time that they're launching. So they knew the risk was high but they didn't have the data that said what would happen or where the failure would be, right. Or what would happen. Mm-hmm. At the center. So in Florida, so they, they say you should launch. So they get on the phone and Larry, they tell, they tell, they, they say that, you know, we don't think you should launch. They haven't given their like written official yet. Right. But their, their, their response is no. Right. They're saying definitely don't launch. Mm-hmm. Larry Malloy gets on the phone and he says, you don't have the data to support this, this additional risk. Jen, not only does Larry Malloy say that, but he says it now in 2020. I know. I know. They interviewed this fucker and he's like, oh, they didn't have the data. He says it's inconclusive. Like what they really had was predictive data. So like, yeah, they didn't have the data that said at 22 degrees, this is what happens. So Larry asked what their official recommendation is. And Bob Lund says, don't, he's the VP of engineering. He says, don't launch. So then Larry goes back and he talks to the assistant central director for NASA at, at the Marshall Center. We don't know who that is. They don't give they the name. They never give a name. They never give that name. And he asks what his position is on this situation. So Larry goes to somebody over him and says, what do you think of this? And this guy says, I'm appalled that Morton T would make this such a recommendation, but I won't go against the recommendation of a contractor. Yep. Larry comes back and he says, what is the recommendation that we shouldn't launch? And the VP of engineering had said, we should not launch below 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Larry says, Jesus Christ, dude, what do you want me to launch in April? Yep. And that's the, that is the thing he says that, because that's what their data shows as under 53 degrees, this starts right at different rates. So if you want to be sure that it's safe, you have to launch above 53 degrees. Right. So by him making them feel like they were like they're not 
they're not getting this done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, which I, what I would, if I were Bob Lund, I would have been like, okay. Yeah. I mean, you can launch whenever you want. I'm saying it's not safe at this temperature. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. they had just held their line. But that who, didn't happen. Who else are you going to get to make this complex equipment in any kind of short period of time? Yeah. It would take four or five years to find a new contractor to do this. They have all this. They have all the, they have all the cards. They have, yeah, all, they the have cards. all the cards. I would have mm-hmm. just been like, I'm telling you it's not safe to launch at this temperature. You do what you want. Yeah. Like, cause that NASA was never going to make that move. They were never going to take that risk. Yeah. So, so then Larry Malloy said he can cons- and he says this now that he considered that an irrational decision. Like, yep. dude. Yep. He's doubling down guys. And Brian Russell says, yeah, that changed the whole mood in the place. Mm-hmm. And basically they were asking the engineers to prove that it's not safe to launch, which of course they can't do like, right. You know, they're, they're like, this is what we think based on the numbers, like that it's significantly more unsafe at this temperature than it was at the lowest we've recorded, which is like 38 degrees or something. So then they decide they're going to take a poll. Jen, how does that go down? They take a break. They take a poll. What's these fucking polls, man? Polls are nothing but trouble. I don't like, know could you imagine our girl, June Scobie, finding out that this all came down to a poll? She did. She did find this out. Oh. Eventually. So they they take a break and they take a poll. Well, so as soon as they break and they hang up with NASA, the number one O-ring expert at Morton, which is Bob Ebling, I believe, mm-hmm. makes a passionate plea. Like, don't launch. This is a mistake. This is going to be a disaster. Like, yep. don't do it. The general manager, who they also don't name, I yes. don't know who that is, right. says, let's take a poll. But he only pulls senior managers. He doesn't pull the engineers. But he also tells somebody in the room, I don't know who, start thinking like a manager and not like an engineer. So the VP of engineering, Bob Lund, says, no, I don't think we should launch. And he says, you need to start thinking about him like a manager and not mm-hmm. like an engineer. No, no, Bob. Not no. on the questions regarding engineering, you shouldn't. No, no. Bob. Don't do it, Bob. No. I'd be like, no, dude, I am the VP of engineering. Like, this is my job. <laughs> like, this is it. So, so basically, he, the, the bottom line is they are pressured into doing this. So they're bullied into doing this. Yep. So Bob Lund says, okay, I don't, you're right. The data correlation isn't actually there, which it's not. But that doesn't matter. Like, right. that doesn't mean it's safe. Like, right. that is crazy. Yeah. Like the correlations there, the actual data isn't there. Right. Right. So, so essentially like they, you know, they can, they can probably do a lot of math for a long time and figure out the trajectory and figure out where that failure point is if they have a few days, like they can probably do that. So like there's evidence there, but they're like, we we can't tell you that right now with certainty. We just know it's going to be bad. Like that's what we can tell you. So they say we should launch and then dumb ass, Sheep, Joe Kilmister, agrees with his boss. He's like, yeah. okay, yeah, let's do that. Well, and he says like, that. They interview no. him now, and he's like, you know, I have to be honest. I agreed with him. Yeah, because he, he just he caved to his seems boss. to have remorse. He does. He has tremendous remorse. You yes. can tell. Yes. But he caves to his boss. He toes the fucking company line like all these weak-ass people do. Mm-hmm. And they just all like, okay. And then... Joe Kilminster is the guy. Oh, so then they call, 
they call back at NASA and Alan McDonald's is in the room and they come on and they say, um, yeah, you can go ahead with the launch. The data is inconclusive. And Alan McDonald's like, what? <laughs> like, are, you kidding me? are you kidding me right now? And he's stunned. And, and NASA then says, we're going to need that in writing. Red flag. Oh my guys. God. Oh, Red Jesus flag. Christ. Oh, no way. Like they, oh, they just hung them out to dry. It was so obvious. Guys, here's a rule of thumb. Don't put anything in writing. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing. You don't believe is true. Right. Do not. So Joe. And if somebody's asking you to, red flag. Yeah. So Joe Kilminster signs it. Brian. Which (laughs) was a big deal because normally the engineers would have to have signed that. And he signed it as a manager. He signed it as a manager. Mm -hmm. So he signs it. I don't know why his boss, the top brass in that room should have signed it that should have been yep. who was responsible yep yep so he signs it then brian sends the fax poor brian he's like poor he's brian he, first of all i had to wonder he said he knew how to work the fax machine right was he the only one who knew how to work the fax machine probably because i just would have like did the wrong yeah could you imagine if that diabolical thing happened maybe they would have scrubbed the launch Maybe. Like, I, I don't know. I'm sending it. It's not going through. I don't know what's going on. Technical problem. Yeah. But in those days, like, I remember even, like, in the 90s when you sent a fax, like, sometimes with a, a, a signed document, you had to sign it also as, like, I'm the sender. Yeah. And his signature was on it, too. And he's like, I just wish I put, like, there's dissenting, dissenting opinion view. <laughs> yeah. So he sends it. NASA has their paper. And they're like, great, good. Thanks, guys. And that's it. The launch is on. The next day, everybody wakes up and the maintenance crew at the pad had left the water lines open so that they wouldn't freeze. Right. Everything is covered in ice. I mean, covered. Like like one to two foot icicles hanging off this thing. I'm wondering, now that I think about it, Peter Billingsley, Ralphie from A Christmas <laughs> Story, was in the crowd. Was he worried an icicle was going to come down on his eye? Right, I forgot about that. <laughs> Can I make a note on Peter Billingsley real quick? I always read like reviews of the series. Everybody loves this. It has 88% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is hard to do. JJ Abrams knows what he's doing. The writers of this were excellent. Really this was a this. great and well-produced documentary. One of the only critical reviews I read had a problem with Peter Billingsley Why? Why? Being, being the final voice in episode three. They're like, um, why would you have the explosion and then end on Peter Billingsley? Oh, okay. And not one of the family members. But I thought, I thought what he said was important. I don't, I don't think it mattered who said it, really. What he said was important, but it was an odd choice. Yeah. Let's fine. just go there. Okay. All right. So everything's covered in ice. A crew, they have to move the launch two hours. So the whole thing is covered in ice. Everyone. Is like this thing, this is going to get scrubbed. Like, there's no way. They had to delay it two hours because they had to bring in ice and debris crews to, like, walk around and inspect. Because what they're afraid of happening is that during the launch, one of these, like, two-foot, you know, like, three-inch thick icicles will fly off and hit the heat shield and damage it. So they have people in Houston doing calculations, like, considering where all the icicles are, to see if they think it'll hit, if it'll hit the orbiter. Like... Oh my God, guys. Yeah. And they take another poll. They take another <laughs> poll and they say it's a go. Let's launch. 
Oh, Jesus. Holy shit. So you have the story of the launch kind of told from a couple different points of view. So one of them that I thought was interesting was Frederick Gregory and Rich Covey are in Houston. And they're, uh, Frederick Gregory's telling it from his point of view. And it, I just thought it was kind of interesting, like, because he wasn't involved. Well, they were the in Capcom, a lot of that. So they're, they're the communications yep. through the mission. Yep. And he was saying that, you know, before a launch, like everything is really quiet at Mission mm-hmm. Control. So there's like just this, and you see when it does explode, you yep. see their expressions. Yeah. It's crazy. And everyone at um, Morton Dial Call is watching this from a conference room. So they're oh, all yeah. packed and, in the conference um, room. I talked last episode, I kind of read Bob Ebling's daughter a little bit because <laughs> she's really laying it on thick. But she's doing it again because she's like, I'm in the room and my dad's there and he's crying and he's a nervous wreck. And then, you know, the shuttle goes up and he's like, we're not done yet. Like he predicted the entire thing. Like, I don't know. I knew. No, because he he knows these rockets the best. So he knew the exact moment of when the most pressure would be put on or when the, and they do something and that, and it happens. So like he was, he was right. Like there was some other part of, of the launch that they were moving into when it happened because they had just given that direction. So, so you see the launch and it's the footage that we all know. We've seen Mm -hmm. it a million times. The shuttle goes up. You see the families in the meantime, when they're talking about this, you see all these different people who've come from all over the country to see this. You see Girl Scouts. Yep. Everybody in Krista McAuliffe school is watching it. Schools across the country. What's interesting is in that podcast I listened to, they said it really wasn't watched widely except for like in schools. Cause it was like yeah. on 1130 on a Tuesday, you yeah. know? So none of the networks carried it. It was on CNN and a lot of the schools carried it because of Krista McAuliffe. Was it on channel one? It was probably on channel one with Anderson <laughs> Cooper. <laughs> um, so, you know, you just, you never really saw that human aspect of it before, like the crowd's reaction. I never saw that footage before. Of no, the crowd. and they zoom right in on Kristen yeah. Call's parents. On, on a couple of them, like the yeah. sister they zoom in on. Like, yeah, it's it's yeah. really, it's devastating. And you can see the confusion. So you see, you know, they're communicating with Mike Smith, full throttle, blah, 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 main engine, da, da, da. Then you just see it happen. Yeah, and it and, sounds more like, well, and I heard a rumor, and I don't know if this is true. Maybe I heard it on that podcast. I don't know. I've been watching so many things. You did about things. the explosion sounds? About the explosion. Like there wasn't an explosion, but you kind of see something. But what had happened is it actually, the one rocket like went off sooner or, or, or it ended up imbalanced and it tore it apart. It's kind yes. of like the torque, torque, yep. torque. And then something emptied. Yeah. And that's that what caused that big plume. Fuel. Yeah. That was that's, the rocket fuel. Because it probably what, tore the rocket like the main rocket part and all the f- fuel fell out, or maybe it was the rocket booster. I don't Jen, know. Jen, that's what caused the unusual plume. Oh my God. We think. Anyway, so so you see the families and you see Barbara, the backup for Krista McAuliffe, and she's watching it. And she yep. runs to be with the families to, yeah. to kind of talk to them. Um, you see Frederick Gregory, Rich Covey, their They're faces. Stunned. They're just stunned. Because they don't, they, is they, like, but don't forget, they don't, they must have seen it, right? 
but they oh, heard yeah. it. They more yeah. like heard heard something because oh, they heard it and weird. thought. Yeah, and they were just like, like everyone was just stunned. Like no one, because at least the people at NASA knew what they should have been seeing, where the crowd didn't even know that something wrong had happened. They were confused. no, but but here's something weird. So there is a voice over the intercom. And they come on and they say the vehicle has exploded. They say, we have a report from the flight dynamics officer. The vehicle has exploded. That's it. That's all they say. So June is still, you know, hoping that Dick is alive. And Mike, I think it's Mike Smith's daughter that they interview. She's hoping they're still. I like, mean, they don't not, know. But that's not an unfair thing. To no, think. it's not. Not at all. Because they don't know. broke up coming in in the atmosphere, right? Yes. And that whole thing broke up, like burned up and everything. And like the, the what is it called? The, the cruise in? The capsule was like landed. Like they yeah. landed and they were okay. So like it's not impossible to think that. Like I don't think that's a wild thought, especially if you're talking about your family. Yeah. Like you're, you know, there's there could be some hope there. I don't think that's an impossible thing to think. So let's talk about this for a minute, because this is something I never knew. It didn't explode. No. And they they were alive. Yep. Now there's some, okay, so obviously we will never know. But there are some reports that say that Mike Smith made a couple switch flips that show he was reacting to something. There's some reports that say they were alive but unconscious when they right. hit the water because the the, the force, force yeah. would have yep. knocked them out. There's some that say they probably died within 10 or 15 seconds from the force. So like if I, I mean, this is so dark to even think about, but if I'm, you know, June Scobie, yeah. I'm hoping it was quick and it was over. Yeah. But I never they, knew uh, that. I thought they it exploded. They don't really, like they found their bodies. Yeah. But they were not, you know, like it, it took months to find them. And they weren't in, like, there wasn't a great, there wasn't a lot to autopsy, let's say. Like, they were, their bodies weren't in great condition just from being in the ocean for that long. Well, I was going to say, they were in the ocean. So they don't know for sure, but they they think that they were either crushed or, like, passed out instantly from the forces. Because the forces that would have torn that rocket apart, like, they wouldn't have been able to survive. So, like, they don't think that that they lived for more than a few seconds. That's their thought. Yeah. It's still, it's still really yeah. upsetting. Yeah. Well, I had no idea. I Me thought they, I thought it all exploded. I thought no it all idea. exploded. No. Yeah. So, all right. So let's move on into episode four, where we start to. Oh, wait, the controversy at the end of episode three that those people are complaining about is the person, Ralphie. From a Christmas story. <laughs> from a Christmas story says, they came on the loudspeaker and they said, we have. They said the vehicle has exploded and that was it. You could tell he's torn up about this. Yeah. Like this affected him. You yeah. can tell. Yeah, yeah. Like he was a child, don't forget. Yes. Yep. Well, he was probably our age. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I think so, he's a little bit older than me. I think like a year or two. So epi- episode four starts really in a unique way, I think. It starts with some home video that somebody's taking. Of the launch. And my closed captioning identified man one and then George. So man one and his wife are like, there it goes, there it goes. And, you know, you see it through their obvious handheld camcorder 
oh, it's up, it's up. And then, oh, wait a minute. Is there trouble there? Are they having trouble? And they then George, trouble, George. <laughs> George is yelling, yeah, I think that's trouble. Oh, they got trouble, George. Something's gone. And, like, it was just, I thought that was a really interesting way to open that episode. Yeah. Because that captured what we were all thinking when we saw it. Wait, right. is something wrong? What's going on? Well, you and know? these are people that live right next to it. Yeah. So, like, they, they've seen, in theory, shuttle launches before. And even they, at first, were like, no, that's just the rocket boosters. And then they're like, wait a minute. Eh, yep. That doesn't seem the same. Okay, let's talk about Reagan. So, Reagan was supposed to do the State of the Union that night. Instead, he addresses the American public. And here's what a dork I am. I say to Timmy... This is when he gives the slip the surly bonds of earth and touch the face of God speech. Like yeah. I remembered it. Yes, it is. Yep. That's and I, it. to be fair, I only remembered it because I teach rhetoric and mm-hmm. class. So we pick famous speeches and that's one of them that we chose. But that is actually, I did not know this. It's um, based on a poem. And the actual line that uh, President Reagan said was, we will never forget them nor the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. So the last two lines were actually juxtaposed from a World War II era sonnet written by a 19-year-old American airman, airman who had volunteered for the Royal Canadian Air Force. And the flight is called, or the poem is called High Flight. And the poet is John Galipsy McGee. Is this over? Yeah, I get to talk about poetry. (laughs) He was killed in action near Great Britain on December 11th, 1941. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right, so anyway, so my point is we get to see more of uh, Reagan's public face, which is the empathizer-in-chief. So after Reagan addresses the nation, everybody's looking to NASA for answers at this point. And how are they responding, Jen? They really don't say anything. They tell the people at in Houston and in Florida to lock down all their data. No one leaves. No one picks up a phone. No one goes to the bathroom. Well, that's They're, immediate. That's before Reagan even speaks. Yeah, no, no. So that's is, going on behind the scenes. So they have not spoken to the public. They haven't said anything. They take the families to the crew quarters which is super weird. And at some announcer, they didn't say who it was or what their position was. Some announcer comes in to talk to them and says, this is obviously a total loss, total loss of crew an obvious total loss. Like June is not having this. Who are these guys? June is like, they just kept saying it's obvious. It's obvious. It's obvious. And Jenny June goes to Dick's closet and hugs all of his clothes. So sad. Like I, I need a a mini series, the love story of Dick and June. I just, I need this. I need the Scobies. Yeah. So then we have the State of the Union that night, and then wait, let me just say, while CNN is you know grasping for straws and any information, is when Deke Slayton makes his big debut. In absence of any information from NASA, because it's zero, and like I think Tom Brokaw was even saying like. It's deadly quiet over there. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what's going on? So in the absence of any actual information, they start talking to everyone who will talk to them about what could have happened, which is a disaster. Which is a precedent that is still still oh, happens terrible. today. Terrible. One of the big problems with Columbine was, since there was no formal information, CNN shows up and just starts interviewing kids as they're running out of the school and they get yep. all this misinformation. But at least those are people 
who were at least in the vicinity sure, of the sure, thing. Sure. You guys are just calling up like Apollo astronauts, like, hey, yep. what do you think happened? Yep. yep. Yeah, they're calling anyone who will who will talk. So NASA doesn't really say anything until they have some dude come out to do a press conference (laughs) and take some questions from the press. And he comes out and he says, we have some pictures released of what happened. And as you see there, we see an unusual plume. Right. Because they couldn't Google this guys. Like if they wanted to see, it's like NASA was holding all the cards, you know, they had all the stills and everything else. I mean, the television networks could do that, but it wouldn't be as high quality. Right. So they're like, we see an unusual plume on the solid rocket booster. And the, and guy's the press, like, um, excuse the me. It's like, uh, do you mean a flame? And he's like, it's an unusual plume. And you could see the flame. You could see the flame. It is an orange flame. Like NASA won't let this guy say anything. Mm-mm. Anything. And he, or, and he probably doesn't know. He's just some like press dude. But you could see him like looking nervously. And then they're like, but it's a fire. And he's like, they told me to say unusual plume. Like he cannot vary from the script. Nope. Mm-mm. No. All right. No. And then, and then the head of NASA is on, on the Today Show or something, William Graham. And he says that SRBs are primary hardware and not susceptible to failure. He has no idea about any of the O-ring stuff. Just he was because, never told. Just because you say it's not susceptible to failure doesn't mean no, it's I true. love that. Like I could say I'm not susceptible to failure. I'm going to go run a marathon be, tomorrow. It's just such an overconfident patriarch thing. Like of course it's susceptible. <sighs> this is space flight. Yeah. Yeah. But but he was never told about any of the problems with the solid rocket boosters. Not one word about it. And like somebody Alan McDonald was talking about how they said don't don't ever tell Graham this. So he has no, no idea clue. that there's been a continuous problem. And, and then as soon as he says that in the paper that night is the unusual bloom is all over the place. And that's one of the, you know, like places where the blame eventually lay was this theory that the information didn't get up high enough in management yeah. levels. But when you have 85 management levels. Yeah, right. They this have is a the problem. They have vice presidents, man. Vice presidents, ice climber game on Price is Right. Yeah, yodeler. He would go up the hill. Was he ice climbing or was he yodeler? (laughs) Sure, he was ice climbing. But that's what this was like going up to the top of Morton Thiokol. Like you're just going through all these levels of management. I mean, there was like three vice presidents reporting to each other, like a like a nesting doll of vice presidents. (laughs) It was insane. That's insane. Okay, so let's talk about Ronald Reagan decides he's going to form a commission. Yep. And I think he's under public pressure to do so. I think they have to do that when something like this happens. Yeah. So he pulls William Rogers, former Secretary of State, and he tells Rogers. Former Attorney General, too, which is important, I think. Attorney General, yes. And he tells Rogers, solve this shit, but don't let NASA look bad. Don't embarrass NASA. Whoa. Whoa. Okay, Reagan. So on this commission, I don't have the list of everybody on the commission. Notable people. I don't either, but notable people, Neil Armstrong, who apparently was drunk all the time. Wow. I didn't know that. Yep. Uh, Sally Ride. Yep. 
our hero, Richard Feynman. Yep. He's the Nobel Prize. He was a Nobel Prize winner and he worked on the atomic bomb. Yes. He was a physicist and everybody was like, dude, you realize you're forming a real commission here. Like, this is going to get real. <laughs> and like, he's, he's like a, a crazy dude. And isn't Alan McDonald on it? No, he's who, not on it. Who sits next to him and gives him the. Oh, that's um General Don Katana. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. No that's a, he's a general. So there's also a general on it. So the military's on it too, which is, I don't know how you would think you were going to fake out this commission, but okay. <laughs> I don't know, but Richard Feynman ends up being amazing. So let's, let's talk about what the commission finds. So they start delving into it and they really, they, William Rogers does a dog and pony show. He twists himself 85 different ways to not hear the truth about the O-Rings. Right. I mean, anything he can do. Right. But eventually, Jen, like, he has to realize. Well, so what happens is, remember Richard Cook, the dude that did the safety analysis on the O-Rings? So he hears, I think it's Larry Malloy. Is it Larry Malloy that says this? That they never saw any erosion on the second second O-Ring seals? It's either him or Dr. Lucas. They're the evil guys in this. Right. They're the so bad one people. of them says we we never had any information on that. And and um Richard Cook, is that his name? Richard Cook? Richard yep. Cook leaks it to the press. He, go- he goes to the press. <laughs> he well, he goes to the New York Times. Yes. And the New York Times he brings he brings receipts to the New York Times. He brings Times. the whole thing. He tells them and they're like and we're the going to have your name. Right. They're like we're going to have to have your name on this. And finally he's like, "Okay." Okay. So it's in the press the next day and Rogers is pissed. He's super pissed. Yeah. Cuz this thing is supposed to like this he's supposed to have control of this committee. So he doesn't. So the ne- they decide to make the next meeting a closed door meeting and Larry Malloy does a presentation. And he just kind of brushes the whole meeting and the recommendation of not launching under the carpet. He's like, "Yeah, there was some kind of o-ring problem, but they fixed it." Like he just brushes it right on. He totally lies. He doesn't, he actually says there were no documents about O-ring problems. Like literally says it. Guess who has one in her hand? Ride, Sally, ride. But right before that happens, Alan McDonald stands up and says, we recommended not to launch. Yes, he does. They're all heroes. These little NASA or these little Morton thigh. So they get into this whole thing about the weather and we said it was too cold. And William Rogers says, We're having an open session tomorrow. No one talk about the weather. No one talk about yeah, the weather. No one say what anything. Okay, let's see how that goes. Mm-hmm. So, so uh the gen that general dude is walking down the hall and Sally Ride walks up next to him, slips him a piece of paper, and walks away. Why do you think she did that? Because she I don't know how she got that. Right, but why did she not? Maybe because she's a government employee. Or maybe because she is a woman. It felt like she wouldn't be believed. Well, plus she is the government, right? She's she's NASA, right? Mm-hmm. So um he's that would the give military, her more, at least. But that would give her more ethos. Mm, I think they feel like they were probably scared to toe the line a little bit. But yeah. um he's the military, so that's a better chance. Maybe she ultimately thought he'd get it to Feynman. Maybe that was where, because everyone knew they were friends and they like wrote to work together. And like, maybe yeah. that's who she was ultimately trying to get it to. So yeah. he does something fucking brilliant. 
So he goes, he has fine men at his house and he's like, yeah. And they're drinking. They're drinking and he's looking at his car and he's like, yeah, this car, you know, like the only problem I have with this, I have these O-rings and like when it gets cold, they leak. And that's all he said. That's all he said. And Feynman goes off and he gets all this stuff and he does a science experiment in the open session the next day. Mm-hmm. And the general was like, timed it perfectly. He waited till there was a break. And then Feynman, who's a Nobel, Nobel Prize winning physicist, does this science experiment and shows what happens to O-rings when they get cold. Yeah, what he does is he takes an O-ring and he puts it in a figure eight and puts it in a clamp. And he dips it into a nice cold cup of water because everyone had water in front of them because it was, you know, a committee. He gives it what, 15, 20 seconds, takes it out, takes it out, unclamps it, and you can visibly see that it does not spring back. back. Mm -hmm. So this blows the whole fucking thing open. (laughs) Like it just, it blows the whole thing open. So Rogers is like, he's lost complete control of this. Now the only topic is the O-rings and the weather and like how, <laughs> and how Morton Thiokol said they shouldn't launch. Like this is all out in the public. It's all, it's just forget it. It's over. Yep. It's over. Then it's all over the press. The press, like what ends up happening is the commission, they did blame it on the O-rings. Mm-hmm. It was a failure of the O-rings. They basically blamed it on William Lucas and and Larry Malloy. Yes. Both who are, so the two people who got the actual blame for this whole thing are the two people who have, are showing no remorse at all. When the committee puts out its final report, our hero, Feynman, puts out a dissenting report (laughs) and holds a press conference an hour after the official press conference. That's right. That's right. So he writes a dissenting report and it ends up being like an appendix to the actual report where he says that the management structure of NASA is the problem. The whole government is the problem. In the right. report, what they basically says it, say is middle management, a.k.a. Larry Malloy and Dr. Lucas, didn't go up high enough. Mm-hmm. And Feynman is saying, no, 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 no. Even if they went up high enough, it wouldn't they matter. still would have launched. Yeah. The problem yep. is the management structure. They don't listen to the engineers. Right. Yeah. So yeah. that was his, he, he was great, man. Well, the fact that, that he trolled them with a press conference of his own is like amazing. Well, they should have seen that coming. Like the guy was a renegade. Like he was mm-hmm. kind of like a rabble rouser. Like he was very anti-authority and anti-government. Like they should have seen this coming a mile away. Jen, would you say he's a maverick? <laughs> he's a maverick. <laughs> but they made, basically made NASA look like a pile of clowns. Like, they did. The, and I think the one thing that f- the one point Feynman was also making is like, yeah, this is Larry Malloy's fault, he, you know, and it's and it's Lucas's fault. But like they didn't even know they were set up for failure. They were set yeah. up for failure because that whole schedule that they had to keep was impossible. So yeah. they didn't even realize that they were they were set up to fail by the man, by the whole plan, by the whole thing. Yes. And then I don't know. I know they interviewed Lucas at the end of this. And I just wrote here, Lucas is a scumbag. Like he's, he's talking about what he says is it's space travel and it's, it's risky and people are going to die. And that's just the the chance you take. That's the chance society takes to move forward. Like this was like, he, he compared it to like my family getting on a, a, a wagon and going because of course, and going across the, the mountains, some of them died. Well, did you put them on a wagon with like three wheels and a badger with rabies? No, you didn't. Because if you had done that, 
some of them would definitely die and you knew that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's regular risk and there's clear evident risk. And like, they just ignored it. They were just negligent. Like he is, ah, he is such a scumbag. That guy. He's a scumbag. Is he dead now? Please tell is No, No. this was this year, right? No. So I want to talk a little bit about something that wasn't in the series, but was on the podcast that I learned about. So there's this sociologist and professor at Columbia University named Diane Vaughn. Did you hear this part? And she's done a lot of research around this. And some of her findings were pretty um, interesting, actually. She wrote that the Challenger explosion is actually an example of white collar crime. And she's capitalism and back to, okay. So she also, she has, so most people, when they're looking at the Challenger disaster, they read the, the um, Rogers commission report, which is like insanely long. Mm -hmm. She read all the underlying documents. Mm. Okay. And she found that during the launch, it was the worst wind shear ever recorded and that 50 seconds into the flight may have knocked off the silly putty around the O-rings. So that hmm. was interesting. She is also the one who posits the theory about that perfect day with the, quote, weather delay, that it had something to do with George H.W. Bush not flying in to see the launch. But then he didn't anyway, so I right. don't understand. And she's also the one who says that there's ab- absolutely no evidence that top officials would not have launched. Right. Yep. So she talks about that. But then she makes this interesting um, sociological observation, which is she's coined the phrase the normalization of deviance. And she has used this to explain the sociological cause of the challenger. She defines normalization of deviance as the process when a clearly unsafe practice comes to be considered normal because it does not immediately cause a catastrophe. Yeah. Yep. yep. So that's, it was the normalization of deviance that caused this whole thing. Everybody was like, well, yeah, we know there's some problems, but we haven't lost anybody. Didn't they use the example of like your kid ran out in the street last night, like mm-hmm. your four year old run around the street and didn't get hit by a car. So therefore it's safe. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, side note. She also, I think coined the term, uncoupling which reminds me of Gwyneth Paltrow and Chris Martin that's the one term that I agree with with Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> like that's the one I'm like I completely I don't agree with her on anything but I'm okay yeah. right. I'm like okay. yeah, that makes total sense okay you're, you're not it's not bad you're not in a fight you're just like mm, we're kind of down here yep so there were some lawsuits um the only families that could sue NASA were the Jarvis and McAuliffe's because everybody else was either a federal civilian or military which they can't sue, the survivors can't sue the government. Which is crazy. Uh, which is crazy. I don't even know if that's still true. That would be a good question. I don't know. I'm not sure. uh, but at this time, it was that was that was the case. So all the families were able to sue Morton Thiokol. So what ended up happening, though, even though the government couldn't get sued on this, there was a settlement out of court with four of the families, and the government paid half, and Morton Thiokol paid paid half. It was Morton Thiokol paid more than half. They paid they paid sixty percent. The government mm-hmm. paid forty percent, and um, it was seven point seven million dollars. And that was to everyone except McNair's widow, Jarvis's father, and Resnick's mother. So they sued with a lawyer, like they they went full on civil lawsuit. Yeah, 
and they sued and they they settled out of court but with a lawyer and supposedly they got a lot more money than the other because the lawyer was like freaking out he's like i wish those families contacted me yeah because the other families only had informal advice from like uh krista mcauliffe's uh husband's partner partner like they were he was a lawyer Mm -hmm. and the justice department did all the negotiation for for NASA and Morton Thiokol. Like, if I were Morton Thiokol, heads would be rolling. Like, I wonder whatever happened to them. I didn't look that not up. Not only did you murder seven people, your negligence, or your hubris, I should say, but now you cost the company $4 million. Well, but was it their fault? It was their fault for not designing. Like, because they, they no, no, redesigned. No, it was their fault for saying, go ahead and launch. Yeah. Well, yeah, For but I mean, I'm, to that pressure. I'm looking even before that. So like they redesigned these things and they never had a problem with them again. And there was never yeah. like, so they didn't design them for right the first time, really. Right. So you could take it back to that negligence. Right. Because NASA did have another shuttle explode, but that was Columbia and that was different. That was the heat That was shield. a different problem. That had nothing to yeah. do with the rocket boosters. That was when I was coming back into the um, atmosphere. Yeah. So, what happened to Morton Thiokol? So they split up. Most of the chemical goes with Morton and the the propulsion systems division becomes Thiokol Inc. Then Thiokol in the next uh, seven years, after seven years changes its name to Cordant Technologies. Hmm. Interesting. And they kind of all break up and like get bought by things and it's kind of all dissolved up. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. So that's the end of. Oh my God. They were still doing. Wait, they were still doing frigging government contracts for NASA in 2005. Oh, Are I believe it. I believe it. Oh, well, NASA's as complicit as they are. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I I think it's more NASA's fault, to be honest, because it was ultimately their call. Like, now, we did talk about this, and we said we were not going to place blame. <laughs> I blame NASA. <laughs> in, like, our, in our regular series, guys, our Little House on the Prairie series we say we have a little thing where we go jenny whose fault is this we talk about whose fault is we debate whether or not to have that we're like we can't do that for this in our time capsule and we just feel like that's wrong but here's jenny (laughs) trying to put blame but like like although there was people that like caved in and under these circumstances and gave in and gave the okay and they shouldn't have done that like nasa was responsible for the safety of that space program period correct period yeah. Yeah. Like the fact that they're like, can you sign this away? One of our contractors and like, then we have no fault is insane. That's insane. insane. Yeah. So in the show notes, guys, we will put um, a link to that podcast that we referenced quite a bit. And Jenny, any external materials that you found, we could throw okay. in the show notes. Um, I don't do any research. That's all Jenny. I just have a couple articles and some stuff from NPR. Jane, just put that Wikipedia link in the show notes. At the LA Times. Oh. I did real research this time, like articles from the 80s. Oh, okay. All right. So at the end of every episode or media that we watch or movie we cover, Jenny and I talk about some um, effect that that had on us as young people that we took with us into adulthood. Or, you know, in the case of Time Capsule, where we're watching media that recollects an event that we lived through, it will most likely be something we take on the rewatch. So it's designed to answer the statement or finish the statement, Gen X, this is why. 
So Jenny, so my wife, what is your why? This is why like our whole generation just accepts disappointment. Cause it <laughs> like it, it, as part of life, like we're just, we're just <laughs> eternally disappointed because there was, we, we never get what we were promised. And I just see that happening over and over again. Oh, like that's, that's why we're suspicious about things like social security and stuff. I think is like, we're never going to get that because like, this was this whole future that was like, everyone was so like, we're going to live in space. We're going to be able to fly to space. Like, this is amazing. Like, Oh, we can do anything. Everything's great. And then when this happened, it just destroyed all of that. Like the space program was never the same again. Like there was no mm-hmm. energy about it. There was no mm-hmm. optimism about it. It just kind of went into the background and like went away. It was just like, we were going to have this thing and we just saw it vaporize in front of our eyes. And that was it. Like that was it. So it's interesting because I talked a little bit about this last episode, but you're right. Like there was always this, like yep. we, we had the yep. Jetsons and people talked about like, what was yep. the world going to be like in 2000? Like we had this idea that we would yep. be so much further along than we are and we're just not. And it is hugely disappointing. And we don't, not only were we disappointed, but we don't even put up. Right, the, exactly. We don't yep. even pretend yep. anymore. To have that future. You know what I mean? Like yeah. my kids don't have that at all. They don't have something up there to look forward to. And when I say up there, I mean like on the hill, not any kind of celestial thing. But like, you know, what is that beacon on the hill? Like, what do we look for? What yeah, are we like, aiming it just, for? It just, There's you nothing. know, like I think it's like Ralphie said. <laughs> <laughs> like it's a loss oh. of innocence in a way. Like it was just, it just... Like was gone. Like it just. If you watch coverage of, oh, thank God, here we go. I'm able to work in Kennedy. If you watch coverage oh, of people compared it, some people, people talking this about to the day JFK too. was shot. It was very similar, and you figure that was only what 1963. So Gen Xers start in 1964 so it's you know it's right right there there's this mm-hmm. whole distrust of government begins and this whole we don't trust the man anymore and i think that's you know not only were we promised this illustrious future like on mars or space colonies or you know technologically awesome but we were also you know promised like a strong economy, good jobs, you study hard, you do well, no, you happen. you know what I mean? Yeah. We, we got none of that. It's really, really weird. Okay, so my why is, this is why we need more women in the room. This is why we need more of everyone in the room. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. But I'm focused on the gender split here. Okay. Because it was so obvious. And you see that little action by Sally Ride... Yeah. You know, it really bothered me that she felt she couldn't present that memo herself. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, NASA had the right idea, but you nailed it last episode when you said the men in charge were still white men. Yeah. 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 Like they were, you, they were you can have six black in. astronauts, yeah. but they're not deciding anything. No. So, so yes, there, there's racial injustice as well, or racial inequality as well. But there are no women in those rooms. Mm-hmm. There's, there's just not. There's neither people of color or women. There's nothing. And I, I think it took me a long time to realize, 
Like Margaret Atwood has this great line where she talks about like coming of age as coming to consciousness. So that coming to consciousness can happen at any stage in your life, right? It's not like a coming of age. And I feel like in my 30s, I had my coming to consciousness where I was like, wow, Mm -hmm. the world is really slanted against women. (laughs) Wow. And I think it corresponds with, of course, when I became a mother to two daughters. But I never realized, like, I actually feel suffocated when I see things like this and I see how many men are just making these decisions Mm -hmm. and they're not good decisions and they're not good men all the time. Cause I like, I, you know, I can't speak for women of that generation, but I know, and I know there's a difference, right? Yes. A hundred percent. If I were in that room, this, I would not have walked out of there with any kind of agreement. Like it, I don't, I don't know what the final result would have been, but people would have known there was dissenting opinions in that room. Like it, it would have had a, you know what I mean? Like if someone didn't give it up, it would have had to either run up the lot, like the chain, right. Or something like, but everyone was willing to give it up to that hierarchy to in yeah. that bullying. Like they were all going to tow the company line and fall in line because that's well, what and they I were think, able to do. I think that's another generational difference. Right? Yeah, that's true. We talk about Gen this X doesn't tow the company line. Yeah, we, we don't talk about this all the time. Like that could have been the boomers just falling in. Well, were they? No, these guys wouldn't have been boomers. No, No, they they would have been um, greatest generation or silent generation. Yeah, probably greats. Yeah, but same thing. thing. We we talk about. um, Oh yeah, the greatest generation was even more so on the company line. Yep. But we talk a lot about we have boomer parents and they, they you know they do what is expected of them they. Go yeah. to work. They put their head down, nose to the grindstone. Don't ask for special treatment. Don't do this. Um, and Jenny and I was like, I mean, oh I've, I've thrown a bigger fit at meetings about like launching a website for kids than than these guys did with the solid than in this meeting. Like, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So I think Gen X, you know, that's a definite difference. But I think I I believe, and maybe this is misplaced. That if there were women in this room, in that room, things would have went differently. I just believe that. I believe that too. Come at us, men. <laughs> I don't care. I'm sorry. We and that being said, like I realize ten extras were in that room. We would have been six, but I realize that we are lumping all men together. Yeah. And there are of course Well, and I think it's good also people in this documentary that we see there are good right. men in that room. Yeah. But they were the exception to the rule. They were. And this is, you know, that was the generation and the leadership and the patriarch at the time. Like, you know, it's different now. I think it's really different now. I mean, it's really different. In some places it's not, but mostly it's somewhat different now. Like, it's definitely not. Maybe the government isn't, though. I don't work in the government. And I will say this, too. Like, I also want to acknowledge that being able or being having the privilege to not have to tow the company line is a statement of privilege. I understand that there's many people, you know, who work jobs who have to tow the company line. I get that. But if you're Gen Xer, you might be screaming inside. (laughs) Even if you have to do it, you don't want to, you know, and I work jobs like that and you have to do it. But it's interesting because I feel like that couldn't have been the case with this group. They had like PhDs and, and master's degrees in engineering. You know what I mean? Like, it's not like they were, you know, like they were at a nine to five job that they desperately needed to keep like that. I understand. I understand right. yes. people make those kinds of decisions. Yep. These guys didn't have to make those decisions. 
But there was no individual agency. Like it was yeah. just, you're right. Like, give it up, give it up, give it up to it the company. A, I think it was more about how, their reputation and honor. Like, I don't think it was like a, I don't think they had it, hubris. it for financial reasons. No, it was right. hubris. Yeah. Jenny Deke Slayton is like smiling at me on my screen. <laughs> no, we and we were looking Full disclosure, up. Jenny and I looked up Deke And Slayton. we were looking at pictures and I was saying how like, People in the 50s, so like, you know, like our grandparents' generation, like they were 15 and then they look 45. Like they just turned 45 and like he's probably 25 in that picture. I have a confession to make. I have a confession to make. No. I would leave to bar with Deke Slayton if he smiled at me like this. (laughs) How? He's like. No, no. You know, he's probably. I'm putting the, I'm putting this picture in the Mimi Bees. Which is our Facebook group, everyone. So join up at join oh. us in the Mimi Bees for thing for content like this. Well, I'm gonna plug another movie too, because Deke Slayton is a character mm. played by Kyle Chamberlain. Who is he played by? Kyle Chamberlain? Yeah. yeah. In The First Man, the story about Neil Armstrong. You wanna talk about a dicey, dangerous mission? That is it. But these yeah. guys were like Everyone knew this was what it was and it was super dangerous and they had never done this before and like they got it and they were trained astronauts. Totally different scenario. But that's a really good movie about um Neil Armstrong's landing on on the moon. I almost said I on just Mars. Found the hottest picture of Deeks. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. Astronaut Donald Deke Slayton and oh, first lieutenant Ed Steinman. Beside a Douglas A-26 bomber in the Pacific Theater of Operations during the summer of 1945, Slayton was only one of two astronauts to fly combat missions during the war. They called it his ghost flight. That's weird. Okay. All right. How old was he in 1945? I don't know. Oh, Deke is dead. Okay. I want that other guy to be dead. Lucas. (laughs) Okay. All right. So thanks for listening. We hope that you guys enjoyed our first edition of Time Capsule. We have a few more ideas in the can. We're not going to announce anything yet until we see uh, what exactly is out there and what we'd like to do. So if you have some ideas, if you have an event that you um, recently saw a docuseries about or a fictionalized account of, we're, we're looking for documentaries and mini series or televised or produced versions of events that we lived through as Gen Xers. So come at us if you have any ideas. You can find us on Instagram. We're on Facebook. Our handle is Gen X. This is Y, W-H-Y. And we also have a Facebook group, like I mentioned, called the Mimi Bees. And the link is on our Facebook page. Hey, Jenny, would you him? like to say anything else about yeah, Deke Slayton? I see him in this picture as a bomber <laughs> pilot during World War II. Mm-hmm. Eh, like he's 21 in that picture and he looks yeah that's too young for me he looks 47 what is the deal with that generation i mean he's no charles ingles right am he's no charles ingles (laughs) come on (laughs) all right so again if you're little house on the prairie fan listen to our regular feed where we recap some of the most memorable episodes and I gush over Paul Ingalls and fall into the trap of uh, stereotypical gender roles, and Jenny tries to shake me out of it. All right, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. Thank you for listening to Gen X This Is Why. 
To best support us, please consider leaving a five-star review. All five-star reviews help listeners find us and helps us connect with new listeners. For more information on our Facebook page or our Facebook group or our Instagram feed, please visit us at genxthisiswhy.com. That's gen, letter X, this is why, spell out the Y, dot com. Hope to see you soon. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.